Welcome to Media Path. I am Louise Palenker. And I'm Fritz Coleman. Fritz and I are up in the crow's nest scanning the horizon for you. Our binoculars are foggy, so we will not be able to spot an iceberg. But we can tell you what we've been watching and reading this week, and we can encourage you to explore the award-winning career of our guest, Sherry Steinkellner, whose body of work includes Cheers, The Jeffersons, Facts of Life, and the book for Broadway's Sister Act. She's coming right up, but first, some recommendations and perhaps our first argument. Right, Fritz? I hope so. I hope our relationship (laughs) is strong enough to withstand this. So I'm going to start by encouraging you to watch Only Murders in the Building. Steve Martin, Martin Short, and Selena Gomez are three Manhattan eccentrics living in a schmancy Upper West Side building who meet while evacuating due to an unexplained grisly death only to discover that they are all obsessed with the same murder podcast. Naturally, while attempting to solve the crime, they launch their own podcast. The clues unravel only to reveal that the killer may be among them. Can they uncover the truth before it's too late? Only Murders in the Building is entirely delightful, and you will find it on Hulu. Fritz, your views on the show may vary. That's probably the best review it's going to get. I I think my problem was I was crushed under the weight of my expectations. For two of my favorite performers, Steve Martin and and Martin Short, Steve Martin, you know, for the icon that he is, and he also wrote one of the best books about stand-up comedy ever written and his eight shows a day at Disneyland and how that helped him. And Martin Short doesn't even have to say anything. He just makes me laugh. I just wanted more jokes. I wanted, at the beginning, they had, you know, some funny lines, and I thought, well, that, that, that'll carry it through. Even if it's a thin plot, that will carry it through. And, and, and it just got thinner and thinner and thinner. And then I got to a point, like, at the midway through the second episode where I couldn't suspend my disbelief anymore, I was just disappointed. I, I didn't believe the plot. I don't know what Selena Gomez was doing. She was having flashbacks and introducing all these characters that I had no, I didn't, I didn't know what was going on there. These are the threads, Fritz. I know. Well, the the sweater fell apart a long time ago. No, there's intrigue. There's personal angst. There's layers. There's history. They're, they're informed by their own neuroses. We don't know what's going on. Is this Les Mis or the Steve Martin thing you're talking about? I'm talking about only murders in the building. Uh. Martin Short is borrowing money from his son. Steve Martin is having an identity crisis and attempting to date an oboe player who lives in the building by serenading her Full with disclosure, his... Full disclosure, there's three episodes, right, so far? I Yeah, maybe. I, I didn't see the third one. I saw two and I couldn't do it. It was like having dental surgery without anesthesia. No, I think you took a nap during the first episode and you don't even know. <laughs> no, I, do you, do, I, I Sting, didn't get... Sting is in it. <laughs> I didn't get it. What happened, Thomas? There's five episodes. Five episodes. Oh, oh, I, oh okay, I missed they it. They include well, Tina Fey and Sting. Oh, I knew the, the Sting thing in the elevator to me was the funniest thing in the whole deal. Yeah. That was funny. There's a lot going on in this. I think there's a lot There's a lot of character development and there's a lot of plot development. And the way that they're mirroring the podcasts that they listen to, I think, is an intriguing conceit. I think Steve Martin needed Sherry's help in the writing process because he wrote every episode, I think. And I think he just, I, it, I, you know, I, I, I wanted to like it so much. Well, I love it. No, it's good. I'm, so I'm, maybe it's just, maybe it's... No, know, it's okay. I, uh, we can... All right, so what have you been watching that you think is better than my pick? Well, it, it's it's not better, but different. Uh, uh, and it was beautiful. Uh, this is a, a movie called Worth. It's a Netflix movie. It stars Michael Keaton as Kenneth Feinberg. And Feinberg is a noted attorney and mediator who was appointed by Congress to oversee the 9-11 Victims Compensation Fund. Who would want that job, right? It's based on Feinberg's memoir, What is Life Worth? And that is the conundrum of the whole firm. Feinberg and his firm have to come up with a dollar figure for each life lost, which is an impossible task. At the beginning, Feinberg is cynical and mathematical, letting similar formulas apply to every single person in the group. Then he runs into a community activist, Charles Wolf, and this is played by Stanley Tucci, who was wonderful. He lost his, uh, lost his wife in the towers. And then the movie becomes a battle between the head and the heart. And banging heads with Wolf takes Feinberg from being a cynic generally, just a mathematician, to empathy. Instead of 
being names on a spreadsheet, which is how Feinberg approached the job in order to stay sane. He gradually allows the victims' families and their stories to wash over him. And this transformation helps him to make his system of dispersing the funds more humane and successful. The real impact of the show for me was watching it a couple days before the 9-11 20th anniversary celebration. It opens a lot of wounds, but while we're mentioning it, and I think you might have seen this one, there were some wonderful uh, 20th anniversary shows. MSNBC's Memory Box was amazing. Very personal testimonies from family members and witnesses to the towers falling and then revisiting their feelings 20 years later. Also, PBS did a frontline special, which not only looked back on the day's events, but it drew an interesting line between the 9-11 attacks through Americans' loss of faith in government and ending up with a politics that allowed us to elect Donald Trump. That was the best one of the group, I thought. Did you see that one? That no, was frontline of PBS. That, these concepts are, are fascinating because I, I just remember, of course, we had a Republican in the White House during this period of time, but it it would not have occurred to anyone to do anything other than stand outside of your home holding a flag on that designated night. I was standing in front of the Laugh Factory. We had just painted an American flag on the on the gas station wall across the street, and there was no politics. No. We were all Americans. That's everybody's reflection. We were, we, we've never been that together as a country and maybe never will be, particularly now. And my, my other memory of that, I think maybe that was a, a Friday evening, and a lot a lot of the comments I called you when that happened. Yeah, you you called me like this is how late I sleep and it's embarrassing but when I tell when I talk about this, you know, people are like, "Oh, I, you know, it was here I was there." I, I'm I'm fast asleep and Fritz is calling me and we had answering machines so you could hear his voice and he's saying, "You need to wake up and turn on your television." And I, I thought it was about something else. I thought, "Oh, the world's coming to an end." <laughs> like, get up. So so by Friday night, I'm standing with a bunch of comedians and they're talking about jokes that they're going to need to remove from their act. And we all finally decided, like, there is no more comedy. Nothing's ever going to be funny ever again. And then that, that night we went into the club and, and the comics that were on the stage who include, included Richard Jenny and, and Bob Marley, who's a comedian friend I know from Maine. And I'm trying to remember who else, but they they were really just extemporaneously talking and the laughter was explosive yeah. and it occurred to me that no one had laughed for f four days yeah um and that's uh, why you we... know mark schiff uh, who's oh, a friend yeah. of seinfeld's yeah he was working in las vegas that night and had a similar circumstance where he was paranoid about going on stage. He said, nobody's going to laugh. It's going to be like a funeral. And he went on stage and said it was the best audience he ever had. People just needed that escape valve. And it worked that one particular night. Scary. Anyway. It was, it was very moving. All right. So I'm going to talk about another disaster as long as we're all in this kind of like somber mode. This is a book called The Girl Who Came Home. It's about the Titanic, which was... Um, didn't doesn't end well. I don't know. Spoiler alert. <laughs> I know you're supposed to say spoiler alert before you give away the ending. All right. Spoiler alert. The Titanic goes down. The New York Times bestselling novel, The Girl Who Came Home, blends true events with fiction as it paints the story of 14 Irish emigrants from one town in County Mayo who boarded the Titanic in search of a new and better life. The storytelling explores and illustrates the tragedy's impact and rippling repercussions on survivors and their descendants. The narrative cuts back and forth between Titanic passenger 17-year-old Maggie Murphy in 1912 and her great-granddaughter Grace, who begins to pull together details about Maggie's history in 1982. The author, Hazel Gaynor, tells us that the group of fellow townsfolk who boarded Titanic together is known locally as the Adderghoul 14. When Titanic sank, the loss of 11 passengers from the Adderghoul group represented the largest proportional loss of life from one region. For the purposes of the novel, the names of all members of the group have been changed, and although based in fact, this is very much a work of fiction. If you love Titanic lore, this is a fascinating read, The Girl Who Came Home by Hazel Gaynor. Wow. Are you wow. ready to, uh, do you have any questions about that, Fritz? No, but I would like to read that. That sounds like something right up my alley. Yes. It, it's, if you experience something like that, it's wrenching for the rest of your life. You, it's, it's, there are scars and they may callous over, but you're, you're wounded and impacted 
uh, forevermore. Mm -hmm. So let's introduce our guest so that we can uplift our spirit. She is Sherry Steinkellner. Sherry Steinkellner has won four Emmy Awards, two Golden Globes, the People's Choice BAFTA, Writers Guild Award, Parents' Choice, and TV Land Legend Awards for writing and producing Cheers, recently named one of the top 10 best written comedies in TV history, and The Jeffersons, Facts of Life, Family Ties, and Who's the Boss, and for creating the acclaimed Disney animated Saturday morning TV series and feature film Teacher's Pet, a 2011 Tony nominee for Sister Act with husband Bill Steinkellner, Alan Munkin, and Glenn Slater. Sherry has also written Princesses with Bill David Zippel and Matthew Wilder, and the book and lyrics for Mosaic with Georgia Stitt, and Jailbirds on Broadway with Bill and Jeff Rizzo. Sherry currently teaches writing at Stanford and UCSB and directs Youth Theater in Santa Barbara, where she and Bill raised their three favorite children slash writers slash artists, Kit, Teddy, and Emma. Welcome, Sherry. Thank you, Louise. Hi, Fritz. Hi, Sherry. How are you? What was Fine. The- I- I just I just want you to know, girl uh, who came home is just went on my library borrow list. Oh, so. there we wow. go. You're our favorite listener. All happen. Uh, so, how did you first recognize that you are a writer? That's a great question. Um, I fell in love with one. I thought I was supposed to be an actress. Um, I met a writer, Bill Steinkellner. We met at the Groundlings, where writers and actors meet and cross over and switch careers. Um, as <laughs> as improv is the nexus of writing and acting. And um, I kind of realized somewhere in my mid twenties that I liked what he did better than what I did. <laughs> I, or I should say I was more well suited to it as a um, kind of an adapted, uh, socially awkward, introverted weirdo who never thought anybody should look at me or listen to me. I did not belong on stage. Where did you grow up? Fullerton, California. Mm. And what type of kid were you? That, that thing. <laughs> the, you know, but, I was I was the kid who ate lunch in the library. Yeah, I was her. Talk about the Pee Wee Herman connection to the groundlings in your introduction. Well, that's it. Thank you. Great question. Um, uh, my first job out of college, I went to Occidental College, and my first job was as a page at NBC um, in Burbank, in beautiful downtown Burbank. And um, I, w- I always requested um, <laughs> any show that Chuck Barris was hosting. I wanted to be there. I was in love with Chuck Barris. And so uh, I was on gong show duty. And uh, <laughs> after the after the gong show audience left, I was cleaning up their trash as pages do when we're not leading tours. And um, one of the people who had been on the gong show that day and not gotten gonged came out uh, with his, you know, his clothes, his garment bag over his shoulder. And I was just cleaning up garbage. And I said, hey, you were really funny. Is there any place I can see you um, do more stuff? And he said, oh, well, I work out with the groundlings. And I, I didn't understand what these words meant. I thought, <laughs> I thought when he said work out, it was like, oh, like I work out at Holiday Health Spa. Is that like size or what do you mean? And what is the groundlings? I don't understand this. And he explained to me about improv and he explained to me about um, uh, how the this group, the groundlings that did not have a theater, did not have a show, did not was not the feeder for SNL as we know it. Um, but they were having auditions on Saturday and anybody could come on audition and pretty much anybody who auditioned could get in. I think I did. So they, it must've been that easy. (laughs) And they became my LA family. Um, and not a lot later, but, um, a short time later, I met this guy again and he was Paul Rubens and a longer time later, he started developing this character, which my then boyfriend, now husband, Bill started working on with him and they developed the Pee Wee Herman show there as a midnight offering at the Groundlings after the rake, once the theater was up and all that jazz. Mm-hmm. Wow, that's fascinating. So were there a lot of overlapping romances and intrigue in those early days of Groundlings? Oh, God, yes. There were romances, intrigue, um, you, you know, allies and antagonists adversaries <laughs> people were voted off the island it was <laughs> everything everything happened at the groundlings it was 
we were all brothers and sisters and and sister wives and <laughs> you know I I, uh, I do stand up which is a different type of uh, masochism but uh, but uh, I've just I'm always mystified by how brilliant improv is when it works and just the people are able I, I know there's a structure but people are able to fly by the seat of their pants but did the improv discipline and the system you learned at the groundlings teach you to be a better writer okay i'm gonna get a little religious with this thing it, it taught me to be a better everything fritz wow. i i credit everything i do well i credit improv with. wow um Every time I just screw up, it's because they're, I just, I can't say yes. Choice. <laughs> yeah, it's like new choice. Um, or I have bad seed partners. Um, <laughs> <laughs> or they have a bad seed partner. <laughs> I, I, um, I think the yes and uh, approach or philosophy is just that every kid should take an improv. You probably... I'm religious about this as well. I think every kid should take an improv class to learn these rules of life, not just sharing a scene. I'll I'll say that and I'll extend that, Louise, and I'll say every mother of every kid. Oh. Every daddy. Yeah. Because um there are some improv games that I I adapted as a parent that to this day my children are 35, 31 and 27 and I still use them. For example, the game, new choice. I have a son who likes to say just the, the thing that's going to stir the stir things up the most. Okay. He is the straw that stirs the, you know what? Mm -hmm. um, and he just likes to say stuff. And so early on, you know, when he was, when he was a young shit stirrer, I don't know, <laughs> I talk on this choice? Yeah, of course. Podcast. Okay. Um, when he was, you know, like single digits and he would do that, we would just play the game new choice. So he'd say something that you just can't say. And instead of me having to be a mother and cause that was my, like my mantra as, as, as a mother was don't make me be the mom here. <laughs> I don't want to have to pull rank here. Um, but I could just say new choice and it was a game. And then he would just keep saying, sometimes he would just say worse stuff, but eventually we would get to something that was going to fly. I think that's so, really interesting based on the podcast that I was listening last night as I drove home from Santa Barbara called South Lake, which I'm going to recommend more elaborately next week. But they're trying to put into place a program in this town in Texas where where kids would be more sensitive to people who are maybe are a different race or a different culture or a different uh, orientation. And they're, they're talking about microaggressions. And so there's parents that are just very, very upset. And how can you monitor every thought my child has or everything that comment that they may say? And I'm, I was thinking as I was driving, why don't you just call it a teachable moment if somebody says something that's just not cool, which people can inadvertently do, but new choice is even better because then that challenges their creativity. So one of the examples of a microaggression was that I guess a, a white kid said to a, a, a black student who is on a fast track to get into Harvard, she said, you know, you're the whitest black kid I know. That's a microaggression, but the white kid doesn't know she's saying something ridiculous. But if the if it if it were reported and it they had to have a little talk about it and if someone just said new choice meaning what would be another way of complimenting your friend without <laughs> offending her entire culture you know there's just way i think there's ways that people are more prone to learn than being scolded and new choice is perfect for that wow you got it. We've <laughs> gotten some great parenting tips here today, but it's way too late for these to make a difference in my life. Well, you're, you have grandchildren. I know. So that's that's fast. I mean, improv, I know that you got you and your husband taught a program at, at Dos Pueblos because I know, uh, I know Josh Duvendeck through Stand Up Circles. And I went to watch the group. And I guess by then Josh was with a USC group. And anyway, I'm backstage, backstage at a school is the gym. So I'm in the gym and Josh and his group were, were getting warmed up. And the way that they were doing their improv exercise was so athletic. You know, they were tagging in and out. And then when they would tag out, they would, they would just stand on the sidelines and put their knees on their hands on their knees and pant and wait excitedly for their next turn to jump into the game. And it's like, 
it's it's not just thinking, it's not just performing, it's not just behaving, it's also it's athletics. I mean, it's an it's, every. It sounds like everything I tried to avoid in high school, <laughs> which is. Uh, but you would have been great at improv, honestly. For I just I, I'm 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 I love to watch it work because it's magical to me how it works when it's working, especially the political ones. I feel the same way about stand up. I mean, <laughs> I could not, for the life of me, get up alone with a mic and a spotlight, and trust myself and the audience to have a good time together. Let me tell you my worst stand-up experience of my life, which is connected to your career. Jimmy Brogan, that used to do the warm-up for Cheers, got laryngitis, and he called me one day and said, would you please go fill in for me tomorrow? Friday night was tape night, because I, I, I have no voice. I said, are you kidding? Warm-up Cheers is going to be unbelievable. So I got all excited, and I felt like my whole cachet in show business had been bumped up a couple of notches. And I got down there, I've never worked as hard as I did that night for no laughs. It was five hours because it was a film show and they had to stop every 10 minutes and change the, the cameras. And nobody's laughing because it's the funniest show on television. You're never going to be funnier than the show. And the first three rows are family and friends. It was like a, a, a comics nightmare. But I still was proud of myself for doing it. I'm, I'm so sorry. <laughs> and I... Feel, I, I literally feel that I, you've taken me all the way back to <laughs> 25. Was it during the Shelley years or the Kirstie years? Mm. I can't remember. It was one horrible day in hell. But but I, but um, the, the show was right. And I knew James Burroughs, who directed this particular episode from NBC. And so I knew him. He was friendly to me, but he was the only guy. And But there's a real skill to that. I'm not saying all warm-up guys would have the same experience. There's a real skill to, you know, crowd control and, you know, uh, uh, and, and now you don't do your act. I didn't know that. I just did my act. Boy, they're really going to love my act. They didn't care about my act. Now you have to have a T-shirt cannon and candy and all that kind of stuff and a dj which helps a lot oh, DJ yeah, yeah. and narcotics you know you just <laughs> anyway it, it still was an honor so i want to talk about well first of all i want to say we have we have similar patterns in that i was also a page but i was a page for the shows that you started out your writing career on facts of life uh jefferson's i was a page on all the norman lear sitcoms in like 1981 or 82 on the Metro tape lot, a Metro media. Wow. So I don't know if you were there and if we know each other in passing. I just, uh, I just find it interesting that people that kind of get those entry level positions and then where they wind up, you know, all those threads and how they intersect. It's fascinating to me. But um, what I wanted to talk to you about is how being a woman impacted some of the challenges that you faced in the writer's room, which was probably mostly all guys except for you. Am I right? It, for the most part, we had a few women come through the Cheers writer's room. Heidi Perlman was there when I first began. Um, Janet Leahy, who went on to executive produce Mad Men, came, had a cup of coffee or a cup of beer, a glass of beer with us. Um, Kathy Ann Stump. But there were very, very few. And, you know, I mean, for me at the time, I was so ignorant. I, honestly, I can cop to it now because what's anybody going to do? <laughs> I just, I didn't know I was a woman. I didn't know that was a thing. Mm -hmm. I thought we were all just kind of there to do the best we could. Right. Um, and so it never occurred to me. I had two male partners when we moved up the food chain at Cheers and became um, the executive producers and showrunners. Uh, I want to say, God, what season was that? Like maybe season seven or six or seven, something like that. Um, and we were the first ones who were actually show running uh, after the Charles brothers left because prior to us taking over, they were there, uh, you know, they were always overseeing everything. They handed the reins to us. And so it was me and Billy and Thief Sutton. And for some reason, I was kind of a lightning rod. When people got pissed or irritated, it was at me. Really? Um, whether they were people above or people below. Uh, I, I mean, I don't mean above or below, but I mean um, above the line or below the line. Okay. Say. Um, no. And I used to say to Billy, why are they pissed at me? We're all doing this together. And he would say, um, 
have you noticed? We we used to watch Sesame Street with our kids, and it was like one of these things is not like the other. <laughs> one of these things just doesn't belong. And that was me. And I kept going, wait a minute, are you kidding me? Are you serious? People are mad because I'm not a guy. Mm. And yeah, I, I would always forget that. I was not one of the high profile female showrunners um, at the time, Diane English had just released Murphy Brown. Um, we stole her Emmy that first season. Uh, I mean, I, I we all- Marcy Carcy? Uh, Marcy Carcy was, yes, absolutely. Um, and um, uh, so it's Diane English, Linda Bloodworth Thomason. Mm -hmm. There were a lot of women who had very high profiles. I was, you know, I, 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 I was coming in late in the game on Cheers, um, even though I would say- and I dare say the guys in the room would agree. I was kind of the one who would say, all right, let's turn the page. Let's go on. We're, we're, I was, I liked to think of myself as Wendy Darling. Um, <laughs> <Lost Boys. laughs> they would joke and play foosball and have, you know, all kinds of um, amber drinks. And I would say, <laughs> let's get out of here. I got kids, you know. You know, I'm fascinated by the whole uh, writer's room mentality. How did that work? I guess when you became an EP, you were the writer, you were running the writer's room. How does it work? I mean, do, do, do you all break, this is Cheers I'm talking about now. Uh, do you all break stories together and then go off in your little corners and write for a week? Or how, how, what, was the, what was the system like at Cheers? You got it. On the first draft, we would come together at the beginning of the season, I'd, I'd say first you start with the upper level, you know, producers and above. I, I hate to keep kind of stratifying this, but it's how the game is played. Mm -hmm. So the people who have been there the longest, um, usually, uh, will get together and we'll start conceiving how the season is going to be shaped. And then you bring in um, the rest of the team uh, and this is like a few months before the actors come back, maybe two months before we get the actors back in. And we'll start, we'll shape the whole arc of the season first, and then we'll start breaking it into episodes and assigning those episodes out. Um, it doesn't work this way on every show. This is just the way we did it. On some shows, you'll see that the showrunner is going to write every episode. And that's what you were talking about earlier with Steve Martin, which, by the way, Thanks for it. I don't think Steve needs my help, but I have some thoughts on that if we want to circle Ooh, back. Oh, I, 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 I want to circle back. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, but um, but on some shows, the showrunner or creator will write everything and it will be their voice and their vision, all that. Cheers was much more like what we three are doing right now. It was the coming together of many minds in ideally in a mind meld and people bringing in their different opinions and experiences and thoughts. And the showrunner usually, or some people reading the room and navigating to curate and find the best of all that so that we can move forward. Um, it is a lot of sidebar. On Cheers, we used to call it bar talk, <laughs> where we'll just be kibitzing and, 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 and just talking. But out of that kibitzing often would come a good idea where it was like, hey, wait, back up. We can use that. We can take from life. We can steal from life and adapt it for the show. So Cheers was a smallish staff. We would have, I want to say at any given time, we'd have like maybe six to eight people, writers and producers of various levels who were there every day of the week. And then... I, and I think this was a magic ingredient. We would have somebody like David Lloyd, or who is famous for um, writing the, you know, our beloved Mary Tyler Moore show, a beloved episode, Chuckles the Clown, wow. a little song, a little dance, a little seltzer down your pants. Um, so we would have David Lloyd one or two days a week who would come in with fresh eyes and fresh opinions. We would have Bob Ellison, um, there were many people, uh, Ken, I, I, Ken Levine and David Isaacs, who would come in and 
not be with us all week long, but would help us see what's forest and what's trees. Punch up types of stuff. Would would yeah. would cast members ever approach you and ask for their character to be taken in a certain direction or more of this, <laughs> less of that? Yes, and our eyes would roll so hard we almost couldn't get them back of our faces. We would, it was, I mean, that's the that's the the gentle walk that one must do. Um, we often often we would just have a um, you know that song in Oklahoma, oh the farmer and the cowman should be friends. It's like we're sharing territory, uh-huh. but you have different purposes. Sure, you need to learn how to how to navigate one another so yeah we had lots of lots of experiences like that where somebody would say oh my character wouldn't do that Mm -hmm. and in our hearts of hearts we would go oh honey you haven't been watching your character for the past (laughs) so when when they say that i i guess i feel like they're saying i wouldn't do that often it's exactly true and I, I could I could go into examples, but it was it's always so surprising because there is for sure a blend of the human uh, in in the flesh and the character on the paper that especially in TV, um, that alchemy makes the character that we see on TV. Mm-hmm. Rebecca Howe on, on Cheers was absolutely informed by Kirstie Alley energy. Mm-hmm. That's a great point. And, I, and it, it connects me to uh, something you said a minute ago. So the EPs and the higher ups lay out what looks like the arc of the season and then divide it into episodes. But what happens, how do you react when you get, say, a Frasier and Lilith combination that turns out to be so wonderful, or a Sam and Diane combination that turns out to be wonderful? Are you, can you react to that later on in the season and say, wow, we have to flesh that out and make it a longer episode or something like that? It just seems like, can you react to the audience's reaction to your show? Yes. And if you're really good, like Glenn and Les Charles and James Burroughs are, you see it instantly and you anticipate it. Lilith Stern and Crane uh, is a character that Billy and I created in an episode. Mm. Oh, God, what was the episode called? It was an episode that was intended to set Frasier up to have a long-term relationship with the character played by... Was it Meg Tilly or Jennifer Tilly? I think it was Meg Tilly. And um, and Which Lilith. Which is the Chucky one? Jennifer. That's Jennifer, right? Okay. <laughs> it was. I think it was Meg who talks like this in the show, and um, she uh, and we were setting up that there was going to be this kind of owl and the pussycat kind of relationship between Fraser the intellect and this beautiful young woman who was the opposite of Frasier. Okay. Okay. Uh, her name on the, on the, it, her character's name was Candy. It's spelled with an I like Candy. Uh, <laughs> so that gives you an idea of the character that we were hoping to pursue for a long range arc with those two characters to set it up. We had him come in on a bad date at the top of the episode with a woman who was so uptight and so controlling and so uber intellectual that Frazier said, I can count the comb marks in your hair. <laughs> it was so tight that she was just that high. And um, they brilliantly cast B.B. Newworth, mm-hmm. who was an incredibly fabulous dancer. She was a Broadway singer, dancer, uh, very, not, not like Lilith at all uh, in her daily demeanor, but when she played that character, it was magic. And we instantly, everybody on the stage that night knew, oh, we have to pivot. Sorry, Candy. It's got to be Lilith. And that was just supposed to be a one-off. And then it became a season regular. Wow. A, a series regular. Sorry. Yes. Really it's amazing. fascinating how, you know, you just watch the, you know, you can put all the ingredients into the stew, but you don't know what's going to be tasty. And then when it suddenly is, it must be really exciting. And what I remember from the one night that I did the warm up and I was, uh, uh, I was, uh, 
spending most of the evening in my own black hole of emotional despair. But what I did notice was... How is this uh, different from other... No, it, it, was, it was a slightly less... Well, my, <laughs> normal, <laughs> but but, but uh, I love the fact, and I don't know if this is James Burroughs' uh, liberty that he provides the writers, but there were a bunch of writers around and they would stop the scene and they would have a confab and they'd all come up with a better line and then do it and then it worked and I thought, wow, that's not only guts, it's just great talent. It was really cool. Um. It's thank you. It's it's interesting. It might there might be talent and there might be guts involved in it, but I think it's mostly desperation. Yeah, well, that, that too. <laughs> but I just was amazed at how fast they did it and how they sort of had this democratic process and then they threw the line out there and it worked great and everybody's nodding and I thought, wow, that's cool. Now, are you are you on the set when they're filming to be one of those people that in the huddle up that might have to change a line in that moment? Oh, yes, Mm -hmm. because it's, you know, even though we have seen the actors through the week play, play it on the stage, you know, we do, of course, as as writers, we're always laughing at every joke, whether or not it's playing, because, well, for one thing, we want them to feel happy. Um, We want the actors to feel good about it. For another thing, we want to go home before 4 (laughs) a.m., Um, and if and if it doesn't work, then we're going to be up all night rewriting um, and we want to give them a sense of audience, but we're not the real audience. Mm-hmm. And so and, and when the network and studio come in, they're not the real audience either. It's not until we get the bus loads in that we actually know what's coming across and what isn't. So if, if we were doing this as a uh, as a play. Um, we'd have previews and we'd get to see it with audiences and make those adjustments as we go through the preview Mm -hmm. period. But Mm -hmm. you don't have that in TV. You just have to react instantly. And so what are some memorable uh, laugh moments that you sometimes will catch in reruns and and it will take you right back to the moment that that happened? That's a great question. I would say that one of my Favorite, well, okay, the Thanksgiving food fight is um, well, well loved and remembered because it was just so complete. And that was another one Billy and I wrote that was so completely off the wall. It was so out of control. And so, I mean, it was a genuine food war. <laughs> and it was, so that was, and, and it was, and it was out of control. And Jimmy kept yelling, cut. And they're, hi, there it is. And and nobody would cut. <laughs> it's a gif. <laughs> it was so funny. Even just being able to see the shadows is funny here. I can... This is when you, when you, you know, when you're a gif, that's history right there. That's not going anywhere. That will play on a loop forever. <laughs> yes. Did you always write with your husband in, in every episode, uh, Sherry? On Cheers, absolutely. Mm-hmm. Yes. Um, we started writing independently, I want to say about 10 years ago, um, when I went through menopause and started waking up at three in the morning, ready to write. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if you saw the history of the sitcom on CNN, which was really well done, I thought. And they showed many times, they showed uh, a Jefferson's clip. And the setup to it was that when... Um, Norman Lear was doing good times, he took a lot of heat that that's sort of kept uh, uh, African-Americans at a lower middle class level and didn't allow them to accelerate. So he was sort of, he had the idea to do the Jeffersons to show an upwardly mobile African-American family. But I was really taken with how wonderful and edgy the dialogue was. I mean, they dropped the N-word in some of these things, and I thought right now they would never allow that to happen. But it was so wonderful because it always made a social point in the Jeffersons, but it was really much edgier than anything I think that would be commonly accepted now. Do you know what I'm talking about? Absolutely, yeah. And, you know, and in a case like that, I would I would guess. Now, we just came on the Jeffersons in the final season, uh, so it was pretty, it was... And I'm saying this in a good way. It, the show was baked. It was it was um, uh, it, it was what it was. And our job was just to fit in and serve what was. Um, so you'd have to ask somebody who was there more than I was. How much of that, for example, the actors were involved in uh, contributing and permitting ad libbing. Um, because it's hard for me to imagine writing 
some of that stuff, typing it and putting Did it you through. you see what I saw? I'm, I'm serious. They, 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 they were very, very brazen in, in their, for instance, the relationship across the hall where the guy had the African-American wife and they, they were dropping N-words and everything in there. It was really interesting. Yeah. yeah. Different time now. I think it, it, it would be interesting to watch groundbreaking shows like that now through the lens of today and how much we've learned and hopefully that we've learned in the last 30 or 40 years. Watch it now and, and see if... Our framework hasn't evolved since the first time we watched it. Yeah. Because we all watch those shows. Well, they still talk about those types of social issues like blackish. They get into some real interesting political stuff. They just have to be more cautious about the words they use than they were on the Jeffersons. I found it very freeing. I thought it was fantastic. It was really funny. And I'm sure it does great on me TV and these rerun channels because they were it was funny as hell. Oh it, yeah. They were just more liberal with their dialogue. What uh so you when you finished with Cheers, you you and Billy worked on a few more shows, and then you decided to to move to Santa Barbara. But you both wanted to remain creative and and still live in a town where you could pick up your kids from school and everything. How have you two remained creative while having kind of a, a hometown family experience? Thanks. That's a that's that's a great question, um, and I think it has it has many parts because there because when we moved to Santa Barbara. Our kids were in fifth and second grade and, you know, and, and a baby. And now they're all grown up and out of the house. So um, early, in the early Santa Barbara years, we got a call from Disney TV about doing a, um, a Saturday morning series, an animated series, which turned out to be Teacher's Pet with Nathan Lane. And, um, mm. and that allowed us to... Um, to work from home here in Santa Barbara, come into Disney once a week to oversee things. But because so much of the animation was done far, far, far away, um, we didn't have to be on hand. Mm -hmm. So that was, that was step one uh, of kind of maintaining or moving into the next phase. Um, that happened luckily to be a Disney show and Disney also had, and, and because Nathan Lane starred in it, we just kept throwing songs into it. <laughs> you know, come on, you're not going to waste Nathan Lane no, playing would you? dog. That's one of the he's funniest gonna, guys ever. If he's going to be a dog going to school, he's going to be a singing dog going to school. <laughs> I think what happened there is they asked us to write a feature. We made it a musical. Um, it turned out pretty well. And Disney offered us the chance to come in and pitch, look at their catalog of properties and see if there was anything that might make a good stage musical. And the two that we really honed in on that Greg Gunther at Disney present us with, uh, you know, and, and, and it was Tom Schumacher and Greg Gunther who originally approached us. Um, and the two that we honed in on were um, a Disney movie called Hoops about basketball, because we thought that would be such a neat stage musical to have all of that percussive basketball. Yeah. It would be choreographing. It would be so cool. Yeah. But the one we ended up choosing was a Buena Vista title. So it was under the Disney umbrella, which was Sister Act. And the reason we chose it is because I live musical theater. To me, anyone can sing anytime for any reason. I don't care. <laughs> But Billy does not speak musicals as a, as a first language. Mm -hmm. uh, so for him, like breaking into song is one of those things where it's like, why are they singing? <laughs> but on Sister Act, we know why they are singing. They're in a choir. The main character was a wannabe club singer. Mm -hmm. And she goes into a, you know, she's hiding out in a, in a, in a, in a convent. As one does. As one does, um, and then um, <laughs> and then um, she gets thrown on you know the garbage duty of um, of of running the choir of being the choir leader, and so there were reasons they were singing for a reason, and so that was we picked up on that and thought that seems like it's going to be a more comfortable transition than basketball players singing suddenly singing okay. 
And no flying. The nuns never flew, so that it's more plausible when they don't fly, I think. And you have the uh, pre-existing momentum of a successful film that helps in selling a Broadway show, right? Well, interesting question. It's, you know, it's a curse as well as a blessing Hmm. because you are always up against this film, this beloved film. Oh, there Hmm. we go. And you don't have certain of those elements that you have in film. For example, the close-up. Right. You know, we cannot direct people's eyes to Whoopi Goldberg's face, Maggie Smith's face, Kathy Najimy's face. Mm. Mm -hmm. So when you're at the London Palladium in the second balcony, which is way, way far back, all you're really seeing is a whole bunch of black and white habits moving around. That's really So it has to be funny. That's really interesting. It has to be funny. The dialogue and the voices have to instantly, and, and it's, it's really hard because if they weren't in habits, we could at least go, oh, the redhead. Oh, <laughs> yeah. the, you know, oh, the, or the, uh, the old one or whatever. Yeah. But all you've got is their faces. You don't even have arms and legs and bodies. You've just That's got. That's really interesting. It is. So are you, ca- are you casting for distinctive voices? You're casting for distinctive voices and you're writing for distinctive voices. Okay. And sizes and ages and anything physical that could differentiate you from the person standing next to you. Uh, yes, and they're, you know, for the person in the way, way, way back in the nosebleed seats, mm-hmm. you're just seeing black and white shadows move. Wow. So we can't mm-hmm. put one in a red dress or, <laughs> you know, or, or, or jeans or whatever is going to help the audience go, oh, that one. Mm-hmm. So it's, wow. so it's a lot. That is so interesting. So what are you working on now? I, I read about the musical that you created with with music that's in the public domain for kids to put on. Can you talk about that? I think that's oh, so fascinating. That's my, that's my, I feel like, I started that about 10 years ago and I still feel this way, even though it's never played. Um, it's had some professional productions, but they've been community theater productions. It has never played a commercial theater and I think it should. It's called Hello, My Baby. Mm-hmm. I think it is the best jukebox musical or songbook musical. It's the Great American Songbook. And it's Irving Berlin and 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 the Gershwins and UB Blake and Jerome Kern. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's like I cherry picked the best of the public domain. And they were all songs that I remembered from the Million Dollar Movie, from seeing Judy Garland and Mickey Rooney <laughs> and June Allison sing them on their second bounce in the in the forties. Right, we're hearing Doris Day sing them. You know, I mean, they were. So, you made me love you. I'm always chasing rainbows. I mean, uh, ain't we got fun? These are amazing songs. So when you do something with with a, I mean, Weezy, you might know this as well. When you do something uh, with public domain music, do you pay any rights? Are there any royalties paid? It's you. It's just yours to use, right? Not after a hundred years, yeah. It's like Shakespeare. It's like you can not only do it, but you you can um, you can work with it. You can rewrite. You can. Oh. So she's writ- rewritten lyrics to suit the situation. I added lyrics, okay. yeah, so that the characters were singing. Uh, so the, so the songs belonged to the musical. We weren't having to wrench things around so that that song would fit. They it belonged. And um, I, it's just my favorite project. I, I adore it, and um, and it is it is the joy of my life to every once in a while get a um, you know a, a, a Yahoo or Google alert that says somebody in some place I have never <laughs> I didn't even know existed is doing a production, and I'll write to them and I'll say, hey, you wanna you wanna zoom in, and I'll uh, I'll hang out with the with the cast and I just adore it. Oh, that's so cool. Now, um talk about your teaching cuz I'm I'm wondering what your thoughts are in terms of how much can be taught or how much natural talent a person has to have. Um is it like athletic ability where you come to the planet with a certain amount and you can improve upon that base level? As a writer? Yeah. That's so interesting. Let me th- think on that. 
Well, I think what you can do, I don't know about, I don't, I don't, I don't know if I want to put improve on there because one of the things as a, as a teacher, I think I'm more of a facilitator. Okay. And you can teach structure. You can teach the three act structure and all Mm -hmm. that kind of stuff. Absolutely. Without question. But, um, but I don't, I don't know that I don't think you can teach someone to have a natural ear, Mm -hmm. but I think you can help them help anybody uh, trust their own their own ear and their own observations and their own kind of unique um, interaction with the world around them and trust it enough that they can write it down the way it looks or sounds to them. And if they keep doing that, they can get closer and closer to something that is true for them Mm -hmm. and doesn't feel artificial or um, Mm -hmm. effortful. Mm -hmm. It's my, it's, it's my goal to, you know, for it to feel effortless to the writer and to the reader. So, yeah, go ahead. You, you, you get a, being a teacher, uh, you get a sense of the zeitgeist of youth. Where are they now? What what makes, where are kids in 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 writing sitcoms and what, what appeals to them? And I don't even know if you can answer this question, but I'm just saying, do you sort of get a sense of, uh, of what drives them, what they would like to accomplish. Maybe not Cheers, but something beyond. You know, uh, South Park. I mean, what, what are people? What are what, what are kids shooting for now? Ooh, there's a big, there's a real range, and I'll just mention a few shows that they have introduced me to, and 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 I've become a fan of uh, Rick and Morty, BoJack Horseman. These are adult, adult mm-hmm. um, animated mm-hmm. series. Love those. Um, I was thinking about I was because I was thinking about it when you were talking about um, only murders in the building. If you want to circle back, well, um, I was planning on it. Anytime you're ready um, to go there. Well, I was thinking like one of the things that I think we baby boomer writers are up against now is there is just a, a much bigger, broader. Um, <sighs> pile of content Mm -hmm. and i think fritz to answer your question the kids are my kids my writers are so smart and they're so hip and they've watched so much when i was learning to write for sitcom we had to go to um collector's bookstore on hollywood boulevard Mm -hmm. or larry edmonds and find scripts and buy them and read them or sit on the floor and read them to learn how to write there was no there were not classes. There were not master classes. Mm-hmm. There were not instructions. You had to learn your own way. Also a blessing and a curse. You're learning it your way. If you're, you know, if you're smart and, and aware enough to be able to plug into, oh, this is how they're doing that. Now we can teach that. And there are tons of great books and, and, and teachers. I'm, I'm a huge fan of master classes, by the way. Um, but, but to answer your question, sorry, I keep like, going way off. No, this is fascinating. um, The kids are so smart and the things that they like are so sharp. The things that make them laugh and make me laugh, like Broad City or Hacks or um, I was just watching um, The Other Two or Pen15. These are some of the shows that they have introduced me to Mm -hmm. and I've fallen in love because they're finding ways to do the same thing that you were talking about with Norman Lear earlier to, um, to surprise us. And I think that, um, I think that that's what, um, in my opinion on only murders in the building, I think that, that what, what is surprising Steve Martin may not be as a writer may not be surprising Fritz Coleman okay. as an audience member. Yeah. Okay, so t- let's talk about Only Murders. You've, you've been watching it, and I, I'm sure that you watch everything sort of through the prism of if I were punching this up, right? I mean, how could you not? Unless they make me forget. And like, for example, if you watched uh, Hacks, when okay. I watched Hacks, I forgot to think. Okay. I just reveled 
in the relationship, in the twists and the turns that I did not see coming. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm, right now we're watching Breaking Bad. Uh, no, not Breaking Bad. We finished that. Um, Better Call Saul. Okay. And, and same thing. I, it wouldn't even occur to me to think, how would I fix this? Mm-hmm. Because I'm so dazzled by the surprises that they have in store. Okay. So if I hired you and I said, only murders hasn't aired yet. How would you punch up these scripts? What What do you think it's it's needing in the in the uh, recipe? Interesting. I, you know, the first thing I would do is ask my kids. Okay. Hmm. Um, because the one thing that was always our, I think, we used to say this in on, on Cheers, um, as we you know, as we became the next generation and then the next generation after that, we wanted to figure out how to stay in touch. You know who did it great? Schitt's Creek. Mm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Gene and Dan Levy really brought the best of baby boomer and the best of millennial Mm -hmm. and married them together. Yes, 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 yes. That was interesting interesting. because that show didn't get famous until they'd almost wrapped their sixth season or something. They started winning so many awards. Yeah, yeah. No, I would, I would just say that I think that would be the first thing I would do. I don't know if, you know, I don't know if they have anybody on staff who's saying, yeah, we get that joke. We need to, we need to be a little, a little faster and a little more surprising mm-hmm. um, because we've all done that joke on, we've all seen that joke on, on, you know, on TikTok. Since the late seventies. Yeah. On TikTok. They, they, so- they've done so much comedy that in yeah. order to have the element of surprise, how, how do we do that? So you've raised three writers and they grew up maybe not completely native uh, tech users, but a lot of their childhood was informed by being able to uh, satisfy their curiosity. And I think that makes us exponential learners where you don't, you have a question, you don't have to go to Larry Edmonds and have them order something and then wait six weeks and <laughs> not remember why you wanted this book in the first place. But you can oh, actually right. Google anything and then see like, oh, I, lo- I, you know, I love Steve Martin. Who was he influenced by? And then who was he influenced by? And next thing you know, you're traveling through vaudeville and you're, le- you're just learning the rich and deep history of anything that fascinates you. And so that makes you that's changing our brains, right? What have you noticed with your kids as they grew up? That's a really good notice. Um, yeah, I, I think, oh God, I don't even know how to answer that. Um, I think they are, I think you're right. They are insatiably curious. And the answer is always right here. Hey, Siri, you know, I mm-hmm. mean, it's just like, you don't have to wonder. You can just find out right um do you so recognize if, your comedy sensi- sensibilities in any of your children have any gotten the same take on things that you have they make me laugh so much but when i read their stuff it's like i wish i could write like you <laughs> i think the you know the, people say the apple didn't fall far i go no no the apple fell up <laughs> um, so yeah so i'm always turning to them and saying check me on this. Oh, I was going to tell you the thing that we didn't want to be that nobody in the, in the cheers room or in the groundlings wanted to be. We used to say Bob Hope in a hippie wig. We didn't want <laughs> that was jumping the shark before a shark was ever jumped. Oh, that's we funny. Just didn't want Bob to, be Hope in a hippie wig. to be of a generation that we weren't native to. And so when I'm writing somebody who, who I just don't live, I mean, that, and, and you're right. That's being around students helps but I still have to have somebody check me on this mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. or I'll call them up and I'll say, what would you call somebody who is, and I'll, I'll say it like a behavior. Cause I can certainly look up millennial or Gen Z slang, mm-hmm. but I won't be using it natively. Sure. Mm-hmm. I'll be Bob hoping a hippie wig and I don't <laughs> want to. Are you jealous with the freedom <laughs> that writers in new streaming content have both in the subject matter and their ability to use language and go deep and go wide on a lot of things. You know what I'm more jealous of? Uh, no, I, I, I'm, I'm delighted by it because I can do it too. Not in a TV series, mm-hmm. but in my own, you know, feature writing and things mm-hmm. like that. So it's just like party on. Mm-hmm. It's great. Mm-hmm. But, um, but what they have that we didn't, we had to turn out 26 episodes Yes. Every year. 
that's really hard to maintain quality control. When you're doing six, eight, 10, 13 episodes, yeah, they're all good. Come on. <laughs> that's nothing, people. Try doing 26 and then get back to me, sure. you know? Yeah, sure. Yeah. I mean, it's funny, right? Because we we're, you know, we look forward to these s series and these seasons and we're like, you know, how many, how, oh, 14, you know, and, you know, you get to the end and then you have to wait. And it's like, if you've ever watched something like Leave it to Beaver and you're like, when do they go to season two? Like they're on episode 57, <laughs> <laughs> you know? And it's like, they just, uh -huh. these seasons just were like the whole year. There mm -hmm. was no such thing as not working. I guess it was, mm -hmm. you know, in the early days of television, it was like, let's put on a show. And they, there were no rules. And so they were creating them while they created their families and while they created, you know, what the boundaries need to be for us to take a nap and a shower. So that's, mm -hmm. right. it's so interesting. And now it's like, yeah, pace yourselves, you know, there's plenty of content, you know, and uh, yeah, that, that is, that, that it's is cost too, right? I okay. mean, it's, it's, you know, it's infinitely more expensive now for the weekly production of these things and some of the salaries, particularly even in the cheers thing and friends and these astonishing salaries that they can only afford to do three. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. Right. And also, I'm, I'm just not sure how the business model works anymore. I mean, in the old days, you wanted to get a certain number so that you could make your syndication count mm -hmm. and then and have enough that would keep running and running and running in perpetuity. Now it, we all do that anyway. Right, mm -hmm. right. So is there anything next for you that you're working on or just even cogitating about? I'm writing features, which I had never done before and never even thought to do before, but I love it. So I'm really excited about a couple of features that are in various stages of going from script to screen. Mm -hmm. um, and, uh, and, and, and particularly the ones that let me disappear into a new world. I spent this past year in 1845 Concord, Massachusetts. Really? With Henry David Thoreau and Ralph Waldo Emerson and, oh, you wow. know. So that's, 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 the, well, that's what you fun. immersed yourself in. I loved it. Wow. I was in my garden one day, just almost exactly a year ago. I was in my garden going, how long was Henry David Thoreau out in nature, seeing nobody and, you know, just having, having only a solitary quarantine-ish like life. And I came back in and into my um, my Google to find the answer. The answer is two years, two months, and two days. He was in, at Walden. And I started reading some articles about him, not all complimentary, some extraordinarily uncomplimentary. And the worse that the articles got, the more interested I got okay. in exploring him as a... Um, as a leading figure in a romantic romantic comedy Ooh, um and so i had a ton of fun the more flawed he became yeah what is your writing discipline sherry what, what what is your writing day or do you write every day do you write for long periods of time i write it thank you for asking i write every single day in my morning pages although i don't always do them in the morning um so i will always write or strive to write free write just like thoughts, mm -hmm. junk, mm -hmm. whatever, um, every single day, just to keep my, the muse happy. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and can you give us, just for people that are, are, are listening to the show or watching the show, tell us about the morning pages, because I, I took a Zoom class with you over the pandemic, so I know about this, and I think it's a great practice, and it's great for people who uh, fear starting, you know, how to, how to get people past that point of like, oh, I'm not a writer. And then all of a sudden you've done the mo your morning pages. Now you're, you are a writer. You just wrote. So, so help people get there. So Julia Cameron wrote a book many, many um, printings ago called The Artist's Way. And it has several practices for people who want to develop or hone or just be in touch with their, their own creativity. And probably the, the most famous practice that has emerged is called morning pages. And all it is, is every single morning upon waking, if you're doing it by the, by the book, <laughs> um, 
you, before you do anything else, right out of your dreams, you write three pages. And she says, write them longhand with your dominant hand. And you are writing in kind of the liminal space between sleep and wake and being awake. And you just keep the pen moving. Even if you don't know what you're going to say, then you write, I don't know what I'm going to say. I can't think of anything. This is stupid. I'm so dumb. Why am I so boring? You know, blah, blah, blah. You just write. Have you read and mine? What happens is you write your way. But if you do three pages, if you say, all I have to do is hit that finish line, then eventually you're going to get so bored with being boring that you get to the other <laughs> side of that. And usually you will get, you will, you will write your way into something interesting that will make you forget that you're writing for a little while. And then you'll be on page three and go, what? I did that. Wow. That's so, so it's about getting to the, it's about getting over the part where we tell ourselves we can't do this and, and just keep them going. And it's, and as a practice, there are days when I got nothing there are days when I've got no time. There are days when I go, oh, I'll just write my, you know, my lecture for my class or whatever in my morning pages. Mm -hmm. Or I'll just try and write a really crappy version of this opening scene or something. And because it's only my morning pages, it doesn't have to be good. It just, it just has to be done. And so it becomes a great scratch pad or, or you know, for for doing actual work can you have cereal and coffee before you do this i'm just planning my day tomorrow can you <laughs> oh can, good yeah no it's a wonderful idea because i think at that time of the day uh before your brain becomes clouded up you're still tapping into your subconscious a little bit and uh probably come up with some pretty cool stuff Interesting. yeah and, and the dreams dream your dreams will like it they'll respond by being more available and more memorable oh, that's wow. interesting mm -hmm. Um, so it cre creates a nice circle. My experience. That's, That's you know, I don't want to promise that for anybody, but, but if you commit to that daily practice, it's like Liz Gilbert says in Big Magic. Here she is. Um, you know, she says, if you show up for the muse, the muse will show up for you, but you have to show up. Yeah. It's a meeting. Paraphrasing. Yeah. Wow. No, I love that. That's really beautiful. And, all, and also mm. ex extremely helpful. Really, really great stuff. So is there anything else you want us to tell folks about, Sherry, before we do our closing credits and our plea for people to subscribe to our podcast? Um, I'm good if you're good. Yeah, we're great. This has been wonderful. Go ahead, Fritz. I just want to say thank you for all the amazing entertainment you've put into the cosmos and all the great laughs and all the great lines. And I, I know that you feel that. Anyway... If you've enjoyed this episode of Media Path, it would help us to be more discoverable by potential new listeners if you leave us a quick review on Apple Podcasts. And if you're new here and this is your first time with us, please check out our back catalog. You may even find some stuff binge-worthy. We've had Gary Puckett and the Cowsills and Henry Winkler and Sherry Steinkellner and Keith Morrison and, 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 and Richard Sturban of the Oak Ridge Boys and the Livingston Brothers from My Three Sons and Bill Medley and Tony Dow and Diane Warren were just chock full of great uh, interesting hours and we, we we hope you will like them please thank you for spending an hour with us we would be overjoyed if you took a moment to share your thoughts with us or to recommend us this to sounds a like a, a really good show fritz i'm going to subscribe right now perfect so we would love for you to join us online on instagram and twitter where we are at media path pod and on facebook where we are media path podcast you can find full episodes with all kinds of bonus visual content to complement your experience on our youtube channel media path podcast we would love to know what media you've been enjoying you can contact us at our social media or email us at media path podcast at gmail.com. We want to thank our wonderful guest, Sherry Steinkellner. Our team includes Dina Friedman, Francesco DeManda, John Maddox, Sharon Bellio, Bill Filipiak, Thomas Hubble. Who's our new guy, Mason? What's your last name? Mason Brown. And you. Our theme music is by me and John Maddox. I am Louise Palanker here with Fritz Coleman, and we will see you along the media path. That was wonderful. So great. Sure.